This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. Welcome to the Research in Practice podcast. I'm Deborah Williams, Head of Learning at Research in Practice. In this podcast, we'll be looking at evidence-informed practice. Today, I'm talking with Des Holmes, our Director of Research in Practice. Des, can you introduce yourself, please? Hello, my name is Des Holmes. I am the Director of Research and Practice, as you say. Um, real pleasure to be talking to you today. In today's podcast, we'll be looking at what we mean when we talk about evidence-informed practice, why it's of particular relevance to the social care sector, and what it means for practice and leadership. So Des, can you tell me what does research and practice mean when we talk about evidence-informed practice? We've used the term evidence-informed practice for most of our, what are we now, 28-year history, in fact. Um, and it's becoming much more, more common in parlance uh, uh, in recent years. What we're getting at, again, at its most simplistic, is triangulating multiple sources of knowledge and evidence. So, of course, using robust, relevant, up-to-date research and data. And combining this with the knowledge held by professionals, sometimes called practice wisdom, or tacit knowledge, the, the things we know from the work we do. And thirdly, crucially for us, we see the expertise born out of people's specific lived experience as another form of evidence. So for um, many of the questions that we're trying to help our partners and other people we work with answer, um, we're encouraging them and trying to support them to use these multiple sources of knowledge. It's a bit like platting bread, you know, you're bringing together different sources. It's a, I guess we would argue it's a tapestry, not necessarily a hierarchy. So we don't hold one of those things, lived experience, practice wisdom or research, automatically um, above the others in a hierarchy. It's about fitness for purpose, the question you're trying to answer. So we've been really influenced um, over the years by academics in this space, people like I want to give a shout out to Sandra Nutley and Hugh Davis and Vicky Ward, and some really quite sophisticated thinking that has taken us beyond um, rolling out research evidence into this notion of evidence-informed practice. So the approach we take really complements the work of, for example, places like What Works Centres, um, gives us a little space to try and attend to the, the what if, what matters questions, as well as those what works questions, recognising that some of those questions facing our sector, those what if, what matters questions, can be very hard to answer through experimental studies alone. So to delve in a little deeper, can you tell me how evidence-informed practice is different to evidence-based practice? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, it's important I say uh, at the start that the term evidence-based practice has many, many merits. So the fact that we uh, use evidence-informed practice is not a, a criticism of evidence-based practice per se, but there are some differences. So the term evidence-based tends to be understood as implementing um, quite discrete interventions or, or programmes that have been very rigorously tested uh, and tested in a very precise way in order to try and replicate the same results when you implement it that they found in the testing, which you know, sounds absolutely grand and, and is for um, a number of discrete interventions or programmes. The term originally came from medicine and medical research. And so for good reason, it relied on a sort of a ranking of methods, a hierarchy of methods for testing. Um, and and some commentators over the years have argued that that approach to sort of ranking the, the, in order of priority, the best ways of testing effectiveness can mean that standardised interventions 
discrete interventions that have a beginning and an end and a very clear recipe behind them um, often are much better served by that kind of approach to, to, to experimentation or to testing. And unfortunately, that can sometimes mean that some qualitative methods become delegitimized. So things like user-led research or participative action research or our ability to harness community-based knowledge. Now, all of those things, of course, are very important when we think about the kind of what if, what matters and what works for whom questions uh, that, that our sector focus on. One of the other critiques of that more traditional approach to evidence-based practice or evidence-based medicine, um, for example, is that it, it sometimes characterises what's called knowledge transfer as if it's a one-way process. You know, you can kind of imagine that the, the, the clever, clever stuff gets created over here somewhere and then gets communicated or transmitted uh, into practice, you know, and that can position professionals or policymakers as if they're passive recipients of research knowledge. Um, so that for us um, doesn't quite work and, and, and we, we take a different approach and I can talk a bit more about that in future. And the other critique that's sometimes applied to um, evidence-based practice in that, in that way I've described is that not only does it um, sometimes struggle to, uh, to attend to approaches in and the way we work that aren't prescribed or standard interventions and not only does it sometimes preclude valuable sources of knowledge um, and not only does it suggest that knowledge only travels one way but it could also suggest that there is a definitive answer or one correct approach uh, and that isn't always the case of course particularly when we think about really diverse needs really diverse contexts you know what what works in Wigan in a particular issue might not work the same way in Weymouth or indeed Wandsworth. So really want to think about local context, diverse communities um, and recognise that that might mean, however difficult this is to uh, confront, that might mean there is no simple or singular answer or correct approach. Taking that then, thinking about complexity, um, why does the construct of evidence-informed practice matter in our sector? Why is it important? So if I think about one part of the sector that the research and practice is, is particularly involved in supporting that, that around kind of social care, social work, family support, early help, that kind of wider um, body of work, it's kind of worth acknowledging that, you know, adherence to traditional standards of evidence can be very, very helpful. I really want to uh, stress that point. If we think about literacy programs or particular interventions for supporting um, parents experiencing perinatal mental health difficulties, all that kind of stuff. You know, there is absolutely a vital place for those evidence-based interventions and programs. But in the context of our work, there's a few things that we also have to recognise. There is a lack of randomised control trials or experimental trials of other types, which would often be considered the best quality of evidence, the best type of approach to testing an intervention. And of course, we can't simply sit here and wait for there to be a magic money tree where millions more will be spent on RCTs, randomised control trials or other studies. And it's fair to say that those, those kind of methods, they might not be appropriate to some of the practice challenges in that social care or wider um, support sector. Um, there, there's an interesting debate uh, just a few years ago about trying to establish a randomised control trial in relation to family group conferencing and, and some colleagues in the sector felt very, very strongly that that should be an entitlement. So there were really significant ethical issues of having a control group who weren't 
um, given that that offer that should be an entitlement. So that there is a conundrum there for colleagues trying to create best evidence. Um, others in this field, uh, researchers in this field have highlighted the potential for what's called therapeutic nihilism. So we don't have any trials, we can't prove what works, therefore maybe nothing works. Well, with the sector under as much pressure as they are, I think avoiding therapeutic nihilism feels pretty important for all of our resilience. Again, as I've touched on, uh, some colleagues highlight that that deprioritizing of some qualitative methods that can sometimes happen under evidence-based uh, practice constructs, that can mean that those very methods that are best suited to understanding, let's say, relationship-based practice, actually become deprioritized or devalued. So there's a disconnect there between the method and, and the content that uh, that is being explored. For us, one of the really important factors here is um, sometimes that uh, that approach to sort of very, very uh, trials led um, creation of evidence and the prioritizing of that, it can mean that user led researchers, minoritized scholars, for example, and others um, are excluded. And that can mean that the way we generate evidence can actually reinforce the inequity, the marginalization, the discrimination that we're all here to try and disrupt and address. So that was a big part of our, of our thinking in terms of our values. There's something around, I think, for us that we've really learned um, since ooh, where are we now? 1996, I think uh, RIP first started working. And, and I think one of the really enduring messages that, that we, we have found is that taking this evidence-informed approach, drawing on multiple sources, can really support that ability to ask better questions rather than seek the perfect answer. It can allow us to be a bit more pondering in our approach, curious. It can create that sense of dialogue um, uh, rather than direction. And that can be a really good fit for practice, given you know, that a lot of the work we do is trying to help colleagues who are working highly emergent um, issues. Criminal exploitation would be a, a, an example there. The evidence base in terms of research is not um, anywhere near complete. So it's highly emergent. Um, a lot of the work that we help colleagues do is, is in very complex systems, strengths-based approaches across the whole of how we work with adults in a multi-agency way. Um, the role of professional judgment, particularly in social work, really, really key issue there. So we are trying to always think about how we enable evidence literacy, not just research compliance, where we're trying to model that sense of um, engagement in the process. It's about curiosity and critical thinking and analysis and and using evidence from multiple sources in combination with your values, not simply always just following the manual. Although again, I'll just stress that where we have good trials in place and uh, well-evidenced interventions, it is often very, very important to follow the manual. So is there any new research or policy that will be of interest to people in the sector? Absolutely. I mean, I'm really, really pleased to say that uh, it, you know it's certainly not just research and practice who talk about um, this approach to to generating and implementing evidence. Um, it's become increasingly common to talk about, for example, lived experience as a source of knowledge. Um, I might touch on lived experience in a moment, if that's all right, uh, Derek. Uh, you can see, for example, um, shout out to colleagues uh, at University of Birmingham, John Glasby and the team who are uh, running the Impact Centre, which is generating all sorts of new knowledge around how we use evidence in adult social care. Uh, the, the recent Children's Social Care Review uh, that DfE commissioned um, had that very clear approach to having a, a, an experts by experience group, a research or evidence group, and then a group of colleagues who worked in practice. So there is this growing sense of um, multiple source of knowledge being really, really important. 
really interesting research recently, um, uh, a piece that I read not long ago, which really struck a chord with me, was from Alison Metz and Todd Jensen and others. And they really highlight that even when we're implementing very evidence-based interventions, um, which you might imagine to be, you know, follow the manual type approaches, what they found and what they argue is that it's the relational strategies that matter, not just the technical strategies. They really highlight the importance of developing very trusting relationships across all stakeholders. You know, it, and that sense of this is a social, dynamic, relational endeavour. It's not simply a technical, we're going to roll out an evidence-based programme kind of approach. Um, links to the work of uh, Vicky Ward and others who I've always been really impressed by. Um, Vicky in particular has done some lovely work looking at the qualities and skills of knowledge mobilizers. Uh, and so we often think about our RIP link officers as being knowledge mobilizers. They they are, you know, drawing ideas and information and challenges in from their colleagues in practice and, and then sort of digesting these and then trying to help them use the evidence informed resources that we've produced this sense of it's it's who you are and how you behave it's not just what you know i find that really compelling it makes me think um particularly when i think about knowledge mobilization it makes me think of the literature around boundary spanning there's a cracking paper it's about 20 years old now it's by williams um it's, i think it's called sort of the competent boundary spanner and i use it all the time um because it talks about how in leadership roles or indeed in knowledge use utilization roles we're always trying to span boundaries between practice and research between practice and leadership between qualitative and quantitative data you know deliberately trying to squirm our way into the spaces between the silos and that to me feels really really relevant for the the sector that we work within and it speaks as well i think to uh, i touched earlier on the idea of one-way knowledge transfer that sometimes evidence-based practice can can suggest to people this this one-way transfer um, we in research and practice, we prefer language of knowledge mobilization. Um, I think it, for me certainly, it always it's it's about respect. So there's a researcher, um, Lawrence Green, who uh, wrote a paper a few years ago and talks about the fallacy of the pipeline. That fallacy of the pipeline relies this fallacy of the empty vessel, the idea that practitioners or policymakers or, or leaders are sort of sat there just waiting to be filled up with someone else's academic knowledge, and that's not our experience at all. And again, if we think about the practice values of the sector we support, we wouldn't want any citizen to feel like a passive recipient of professional intervention. We want people to be active agents in the work that they're doing with a given professional. You know, you think about social work, youth work, occupational therapy, you know, that our practice in our sector at its best is about partnership and collaboration with the person being supported. Brilliant. Thanks, Des. That's really helpful. We'll link to those papers that you mentioned in the show notes so that everybody um, has, has a link to them and you can have a deeper look into that should you wish. So going back to that point that you made around lived experience, what does evidence-informed practice mean for the way that we think about lived experience? Do we need to think critically about lived experience? I think I think we do, yes. And and I've um I suppose I've changed my mind a bit about about this over the years. I know if you'd we were doing this podcast, you know, five, 10 years ago, I'd probably have ranted for 45 minutes about how people don't respect uh, lived experience as a valid source of knowledge. And and more recently, I think I take a little more of a nuanced perspective. It is, of course, great that we're seeing an increased commitment to respecting and valuing people's lived experience in, for example, policy formulation and uh, research generation activity. 
but I think we do think a little critically here. Um, I think back to my point about it being a tapestry and not a hierarchy, my, my personal view, uh, and I think one that we, we, we see across our work in research and practice is that people's, the, the stuff we know because we've lived it is absolutely vital, um, but it is not definitive any more than the stuff we know because we've worked in it or the stuff we know because we've studied it is definitive. Um, you know, very few, if any, sources give you a definitive answer. They help you ask better questions when you take them uh, collectively and, and consider them as a whole. There's also an issue with the language, isn't there? Lived experience of what? <laughs> well, I, I found myself in a group not long ago where uh, someone said, oh, we need to make sure we've got some young people here who bring lived experience. And I was like, of what? Of being young people? Because I'm kind of hoping we all had that experience. None of us were born at the age of 42, were we? So there's often a lack of specificity. Do we mean lived experience of being supported by domestic abuse services? Lived experience of having a physical disability and being worked with by a social worker? You know, that specificity really matters. Um, you wouldn't just invite any researcher to talk on any topic just because they're a researcher, you know, so it's that same sense of discipline in the thinking. Um, the other thing, of course, I know it sounds obvious, is, you know, my lived experience is just that. It is only my lived experience. I might choose or try to talk on behalf of all overweight brunette Virgos who grew up in Wales, but I should not be allowed to, Dovrig, because my lived experience is only my lived experience. And um, one is a very small sample size to base any practice or policy decisions on. There's something about how we go to, you know, what you might call sources for courses. Depending on the question in hand, we need to go to the right source. I would not dream of asking even the most skilled and knowledgeable researcher who spent years analysing the quantitative data on care lever outcomes to tell me what it's like to leave care. In the same vein, I wouldn't ask a person who's had their child removed into care what works for all parents who've faced that kind of trauma. So something about part of respecting that source of knowledge is asking the right questions of it. Part of what's shaped my thinking is some really excellent commentary uh, in recent years um, that's just been just such a helpful provocation to the accepted orthodoxy of lived experience matters. Well, of course it does, but but then what? So uh, there was a blog recently, we must put this in the show notes too, Deborah. There's a blog authored by um, uh, a guy called John Radu, um, who himself brings lived experience of growing up in uh, the children's care system and now uh, works as a professional in a therapeutic role, writes very, very well. And he wrote a blog which stopped me in my tracks. The title alone is a great provoc provocation. He talks about the fetishization of lived experience. And he makes all sorts of thought provoking points in that, one of which was along the lines of, and forgive me, John, I'm probably going to misquote you here, but talking about how if you're building a hospital, it might be important to talk to patients, but really you need to engage an architect and ideally get that architect to talk to patients, not privilege someone's experience of being a patient over someone who understands, you know, where to put load bearing walls and what kind of double glazing we need. Uh, and I, that, again, that sounds really obvious, but I sometimes think we're not as disciplined as we could be in, in thinking about inadvertently privileging some some knowledge or expertise over others. And there's two other points I make. The first is that 
we must not assume that research knowledge, practice wisdom and lived experience, expertise, lived experience exist only in separate people and they're mutually exclusive. Many, many people go into practice because of their personal experiences. Many people go into research because of their practice or indeed uh, personal experiences. So we, again, it's like platting bread. These sources of knowledge are not mutually exclusive. And we have no idea when we sit in a meeting uh, of other professionals um, and we talk about, let's say, mental health, and we say, oh, we need a mental health service user in to tell us what it feels like. Well, if one in four of us experience mental uh, ill health in our lifetime, how on earth do we think that no one in that room of professionals brings lived experience? So just being a little cautious, we don't assume mutual exclusivity. And the last point, and, and I, you know, there's colleagues up and down the country who do really good thinking on this and, and offer a lot of challenge, is that some of our methods and approaches to accessing people's expertise through their lived experiences of particular issues can be tokenistic. They can be um, even downright exploitative. You know, if we're going to be really tough on ourselves, do we think, for example, again, I'm influenced here by a, a great blog uh, I read a year or two ago during National Care Leave a Week, where a young person who had experience being in care was talking about how traumatising and triggering it is during this week. I hate this week because you get suddenly loads of people asking to speak at conferences, sometimes for free, sometimes for 10 minutes, sometimes, you know, um, when they won't pay your travel. And that 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 feels not only tokenistic, but also quite harmful, quite exploitative in that kind of um, harnessing of their very private stories in ways that are not always ethical. And I think in some of our work, this extractive approach Come and tell me your most personal, private, painful story, David. Tell it to a room full of 200 people. In fact, you know what? Why don't we film it? Why don't we record it? Um, now, even if you gave your freely given, fully informed consent at the time, what if you feel different next year? It's already on YouTube. What if you feel different in 10 years time when you're training to be an occupational therapist yourself? And I would go so far so that in some sectors, particularly when we're thinking about think about things like uh, knife crime and, and so so-called so youth violence or serious violence we want to pay real attention I think to the potential colonial aspects of this work it can be a really extractive industry if we're not careful so certainly um, I would agree with most of the, the, the country I'm sure that, that people's lived experience is a really important source of knowledge that we must respect and honour and validate and draw on to make complex decisions but it's a tapestry, not a hierarchy, and we have to do it well. And that might involve us thinking quite critically um, in how we do so. Thanks, Dennis. That's a really helpful challenge and gives us all, I think, a ton to think about. So taking that further then, what does it mean to be evidence-informed in practice? I'm also really interested around what it might mean for leadership too. I mean, that's a good point, isn't it? Even the language of evidence-informed practice, pretty flawed because people think it only means direct practice. But I think we would say we're also about management practice, leadership practice, commissioning practice, policy-making practice. You know, it's it's those multiple levels. So if we think about a person in direct practice, you know, working with an adult or child or young person, it would mean, of course, drawing on and considering those multiple sources. What do we know from the best available, most up-to-date, relevant, robust research? What do I know as a professional working in this space? And what can I learn from other professionals, my manager, my supervisor, my peers, my multi-agency partnership colleagues? 
and what can I learn from the person I'm serving and or other people I've served and supported? So how do I draw on these multiple sources of knowledge to inform my decision making and my approach? Always paying attention to context and finding a way where you're holding both and holding both the evidence base in mind and thinking about your own professional values. You know, why do you do the job you do? What matters to you in terms of your values, your morals, your professional code of ethics, if you work in a role that, that has one? For me, I guess it's about curiosity. Always wondering, what if? What matters? What might work? How would I know if it wasn't working? What evidence is there to suggest this might be a good path to pursue with this particular family, with this particular older person I'm trying to help live an independent life? How do I know that? How legit are the sources I'm drawing on? How would I know if I was making a mistake? How can I ensure that I feel safe enough to say if I'm making a mistake? Who do I go to if I need to course correct? That, that sense of um, curiosity and critical thinking seems really paramount here. I think uh, if we, oh, it's a nice example actually, one of the really, really popular bits of work that we've done, um, supported by the excellent Professor Danielle Turney, one of the original authors, years ago, we did a project which was about analysis and critical thinking in assessment. Uh, and the, the, the group of professionals we worked with produced a sort of set of anchor principles about, you know, understanding why we're telling this story and um, what, what the story is and what would need to change and how do we know things are changing. Really quite simple. Um, but quite profound statements. And what's been so interesting to see over the last decade or so is how that that framework for analysis and critical thinking, what evidence source am I drawing on? How do I know they're the right ones? How do I know they're robust? Has been equally applicable from working with very young children through to working with teenagers, through to working with adults. There's something about the commonality across the sector um, of how we absorb this this way of thinking about knowledge and evidence into our day job. Now, I would go so far as to argue that those anchor principles, and, and again, we'll put a link in the show notes to the analysis critical thinking um, handbook. I would say those same principles are exactly the same if you're writing a whole local area exploitation strategy or undertaking a strategic needs assessment. So some of the principles around, am I, am I going to the right sources for the questions I'm trying to answer? How do I check my questions are the right ones to ask? How do I stay curious? How do I kick the tires and, and check that the knowledge I'm using is, is uh, up to scratch? How do I change my mind if I need to? And how do I demonstrate my professional values and ethics within the work I'm doing? They're actually transferable from direct practice right through to strategic leadership. There is, of course, some organisational infrastructure that really helps here. Um, again, I'm thinking like uh, Nutley and Davis, who talked about that organisational excellence approach, where this approach to evidence is just woven into the brickwork and the bloodstream of an organisation, um, which is you know what we're all aiming for. There are some really practical things that matter here. You know, staff having access to ideally really high quality synthesised research based resources. Hello, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't mention that that's what RIP provides. Um, making sure, you know, is there a library? or an intranet you can go to? Does the supervision policy for staff have embedded within it questions around the use of evidence so the supervisors are sharing that responsibility and driving that culture of evidence-informed practice? Um, there's something here as well about the, the intellectual investment. Are leaders showing their workings out? 
asking their questions in public, um, providing some of the intellectual leadership necessary to be curious, evidence-informed uh, uh, professionals in the local system. And then there's also the emotional investment, showing that it matters, showing that being evidence-informed in our work is not some niche, nerdy, abstract academic thing. It's the absolute bread and butter of our moral purpose. The very least the citizens we serve deserve is that the people supporting them know what they're up to. And professionals working in a tough context as they are now, they deserve to have a really clear framework and organisational support for practising in this way. So I would say it's a whole organisation responsibility. It's not just about individual practitioners or leaders. And of course, all of this means being really open to new ideas, being prepared to be challenged, being prepared to be surprised, being prepared to be wrong. You know, I guess that's part of the emotional resilience required. There's a, a lovely blog that Michael Sanders, who is the ex-chief exec of the What Works Centre, has written for us actually about being evidence informed means being open to surprises, sometimes unwelcome surprises, where a thing you are really rooting for is found not to be effective. We'll make sure we share that too in the notes. Brilliant, thanks Des. You've already mentioned uh, the Analysis and Critical Thinking Handbook. Um, what other resources do research in practice have on this topic area and, and how can people use these in practice? Um, well, there's a sort of meta answer here. Um, God, I'm such a dweeb, sorry. Most of our resources, whether you, know, whether you come to a conference or a, a webinar or whether you're reading one of our publications, whether it's for people in practice or people in initials, they all try um, to embody that evidence-informed practice triad. They all seek to include, obviously, robust, relevant, legit research, but also often case studies or practice examples drawn from the sector, and very, very often, wherever ethically possible, they include expertise born out of people's lived experience. We try to model this in all that we do. A couple of really good examples of that. Um, we've got a whole suite of multimedia resources around um, supporting uh, people affected by recurrent care proceedings in a trauma-informed way. Videos, blogs, publications and tools which draw directly on the experience of people who have had recurrent care proceedings for their children, as well as diverse professional knowledge across the voluntary and statutory sector, and of course some stellar research from um, brilliant colleagues like uh, Claire Mason at Lancaster. Another example is uh, the, uh, I'm really excited about this, it's not published yet, although I've now just dated the podcast, so apologies. <laughs> it might be published by the time you hear this. Um, an evidence review that we've been writing in partnership with Social Care Future, where we really wanted to push ourselves to write with and alongside and co-author an evidence review with people who currently draw on adult social care services um, rather than for example writing it between practitioners and researchers and then inviting people who use services to contribute a small part you know i don't think i'd be surprising anyone to say it's much harder work it's really intensive work but the learning has been phenomenal and in terms of living our values wearing our values on our sleeve it's a really exciting bit of work we've also got a ton of sort of practical resources um, that can help organizations and individuals wanting to be more evidence informed um, there's an evidence informed practice organizational audit tool now don't be put off by the word audit it's a reflective tool where organizations can um, explore and assess themselves in relation to the practical intellectual and sometimes emotional aspects needed to create that infrastructure reference-formed practice. We've tools on things like how to undertake group supervision, how to uh, create the conditions in which you can 
um, talk about evidence in a natural, informal way in your team. Uh, what are the firm foundations to build within teams and services uh, for evidence-informed practice? And um, right through to things like, you know, podcasts like this and, and webinars we've done around engaging with evidence uh, and making it, I guess, making it part of the day job. You know, like all of our work, we're trying to create connected learning pathways, stuff you can read, stuff you can watch, stuff you can listen to. Um, really thinking about how we try to provide multiple opportunities. So let's say, let's take a really tricky issue vexing many colleagues across the sector right now, the issue of exploitation. We've just recently produced these national cross-government principles to guide multi-agency work at a strategic level. We also then created a practice tool that individual practitioners can use to reflect on their own practice in the context of exploitation. This complements things like podcasts we have with survivors, victim survivors, and indeed siblings of people directly affected by exploitation. We've made sure that we've got a briefing for those who work with adults around exploitation and mental health to complement that with children. I guess that's that's sort of the point of research and practice. We're trying to help good people doing sometimes quite tough work in very complex contexts. And so to help people be evidence formed in their practice, we're here to shoulder some of the burden, producing really high quality resources, helping people to think about multiple sources of knowledge from different perspectives to navigate what's often quite complex territory. Because very, very rarely in our world is the answer as simple as there's a research study on that, just implement the recommendations. That's that's not usual in individual practice or complex systems approaches. So I guess for us, when we think about evidence-informed practice, when we first started out, it was quite a niche area, and and you know, and even even in my time, and I, I um, didn't join research and practice until ooh, about 2009, I think. Even then, we were still having the debate about whether evidence-informed practice was important. Um, I think it speaks volumes about the talent of our sector that we no longer have those discussions. It's not whether, it's how. How can we demonstrate evidence-formed practice in our work? Um, and I think that's a testament to the sector, really. Uh, I wholly reject any notion that the sector are evidence-resistant, anti-intellectual, you know, need to be spoon-fed. In my experience, um, professionals at every level in all parts of the country are hungry for knowledge, are capable of co-creating new knowledge, and are curious about how best to apply that knowledge. Yeah, it feels like we're in a very privileged position to be helping them with that. So all the resources that you mentioned just now, as well as in other parts of the podcast, we'll make sure that they're on our website. Um, it's great to talk to you and to delve a little bit further around what we mean when we talk about evidence form practice. And um, we'll be doing um, further kind of topic-based podcasts that we hope will be similarly useful. Thanks very much. Thank you. listening to this research in practice podcast we hope you've enjoyed it why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on twitter tweet us at research ip